This podcast is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. If you want more information, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have a captivating story. Today, we're talking with Nancy Cartwright. For nearly three decades, she has been the television voice of Bart Simpson on the Fox animated series, The Simpsons, now in its 29th season. Her latest artistic project, a new feature-length film called In Search of Fellini that she produced and co-wrote. It's a semi-autobiographical tale about her passion for Fellini's movie La Strada and her adventure-filled trip to Italy as a young woman in search of the great Italian filmmaker. Give people a synopsis of In Search of Fellini. Okay, so the movie, uh, the film, uh, is about a small-town girl who really, she in the effort to help her mother, she travels <laughs> she travels to Italy um, in search of um, in search of meeting Fellini she wants to meet this guy and she changes she herself evolves and also helps her mother in the course of doing that she has a passion for Fellini and Fellini's yeah. movies, Federico Fellini, while yeah. she's living in Ohio. Yeah, she's born in Ohio and lives a, a bit of a sheltered life. And I just want to state that, you know, even though this is based on an actual adventure that I took back in 1985, uh, I was in my 20s. Um, I did not lead a sheltered life. <laughs> I didn't live a sheltered life. I was one of six kids, and our lead girl is uh, an only child. Um, there's no mention of her father at all. Um, she's got a very close relationship with her mother and her aunt. Um, and anyway, she she and her mother lived this life of uh, their mutual uh, their relationship is based on watching movies with happy endings. And they it's a bit of a fantasy that her mother is protecting her from the hard knocks in life, right? But Lucy, Lucy finds out that her mother's not doing so well, and she realizes she should, she wants to do something to help her mother. And she goes off to go get a job. And in the course of doing that, she kind of accidentally runs into this Fellini Film Festival in downtown Cleveland that she goes to and gets, then is introduced to Fellini's movies that do not have happy endings. And you know, certainly aren't sheltered. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it does tickle that side of her that she's interested in, which is films and how films are, fa how films are fantasies. So she decides to learn more about Fellini, and then it was her own decision to go to Italy to try to find him. Is it? I've seen it characterized in looking at the reviews of this as a drama, mm -hmm. uh, a comedy, a fantasy, mm -hmm. uh, that it, a thriller, it, that, a thriller <laughs> that it um, 
uh, embodies Fellini's style and Fellini's m- movies. So, mm-hmm. so is it all of those things, or is it? Yes, uh, it's a great way. It, it is. I think it has a little bit of everything in it. But you know, to also let your listeners know that if you don't know who Fellini is, or you don't really, you're not interested maybe in being taught something. I want to say it is not about that. It can take you down the rabbit hole, so to speak, um, into a Fellini-esque type of adventure, which is kind of a mysterious, symbolic, mystical, challenging, disturbing, um, (laughs) all that wrapped into uh, not so much romance, but um, sometimes hard love. Um, it can it, it will take you there it, on this journey, this emotional journey. Um, I have to say that this was a very collaborative pr- production, as as probably all filmmaking is. You know, I lived the journey, and about seventy five to eighty percent of what happened to me back in nineteen eighty five, you will see on the screen. I did get proposed to. I did have a an incident occur that was life-threatening. You know, that it's fortunate when I look at it and I go, wow, that was a really stupid decision that I made there, you know, as a young woman traveling by myself. As a young blonde woman. As a young, yeah, blonde hot woman, I might say. <laughs> kind of cute, you know, pantomiming, pantomiming my way through Italy. Really, the film, to me, I think men... Men that go see this film, whether they're with a, with a date or not, it's it, it can be a date night movie, it can be a mother daughter movie, it can be a sisterhood movie. It doesn't it doesn't matter. I think the demographics on this is is vast, and from eighteen to eighteen on up, you know, can see this movie because it's rated R. There's a, there's a few f bombs in this movie, and there's subtle nudity, but it's done. It's not there's there's nothing perverse about it. It's um, it's beautiful. It's I think the cinematographer and, and Teron Lexton, who's the director, first time feature film that this young guy has done with with me has been such a treat to you know have him on board. All of the reviews that I've read uh, in New York Times was very good, and and uh, most of the reviews have been very positive. But almost all of them talk about the imagery. Yeah. Of of the movie and how well it's shot and and how powerful that is. Mm-hmm. I think Kevin Garrison, who's our director of photography, he has a magical aspect to him. It's certainly in relationship to the story that Peter Chenis and I wanted to tell, um, which I have to mention is that Peter and I have been um, working together since about 1991, and I wanted to. I had I had seen I had seen Fellini's La Strada and I really connected somehow with Giulietta Messina, so I this was the story that I wanted to I wanted to connect with and I thought wow maybe I can develop that into a play I could do a whole play because I was in an acting class and doing scene study work and playing playing Gelsomina to different Zampanos and different characters that Richard Behart played the fool. And I just thought, wow, I could do this as a play. So that's why I went to Italy in the first place was to get the rights to maybe do this as a play. But I had this such a crazy, wild adventure that by the time (laughs) I returned home, I'm like, forget La Strada. I want to tell my story. And so that was that was the impetus. And you you did 
uh, I don't know if the whole movie is, but but you did a one woman show yeah, based right. on this, isn't that right? That's right. When I came back, um, shortly after that, I was cast in this oh, just this little animated something something you know last a year maybe yeah you know (laughs) that it was sort of like it was a job you know it was a a little job that I had for the time um so I got immersed in it at the same time I had met a fellow fallen in love and had a couple of children so by the time the early well my son was born just after that I wanted to get back and and start cultivating the artistic muse inside of me because I'd been doing animation and uh, had done a fair amount of work on camera. Cheers, Empty Nest, Mr. Belvedere, Twilight Zone, the movie. By 91, 92, I'm kind of like, what What am I doing here anyway? There's got to be more to it than being a snork, yeah. you know, or a right. pound puppy. I, I, I just, I'm an artist and how am I going to express myself? And also me realizing at a fairly young age, there's there's something that an artist can do that nobody else can do, uh, which is to help to elevate the culture. And I think that is my purpose. That's what we do. You can go to the opera. You can go. You can listen to music. Um, you can go to museums and see, you know, see Hockney and see works of Rockwell or. Um, Andy Warhol or Pollock or whatever. Anybody of your choice. Yeah, and look at it and kind of wonder. And through that relationship of what what they put out in their art, it can impinge on you that you are all of a sudden inspired by what they do and elevated to a whole level that's beyond this physical universe. And to me, that's, that's what art does. It touches on the the you-ness of who you are the 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 spirit of who you are and that to me you see and feel yourself in whatever art you that's right observing that's right and it's beyond it's an aesthetic it's like an aesthetic i don't know how to describe it besides saying it's a wavelength if you will because life is electricity it's like we're surrounded our bodies got you know it's like electricity goes through our bodies and yeah you've got cells and it's all that stuff too, but there's this magical quality of livingness and life that only art can really, um, that captures it the most purely, I think. And through that, I can deliver a message. Boy, that's, that's heavy duty, man. I don't, did you follow that, Tom? I did. That's I did. really deep, man. I, I was following every second of it, hanging on every word. Good grief. That's a little heavy. Come on, man. Let's not have a cow. <laughs> so what was the trigger that uh, told you time was right to make this a full-length feature film now? Was it people coming to you? Was it something in yourself? Was it the fact that you're doing 30 years of yeah. uh, of The Simpsons? Uh, what, what was the trigger? Tom, that's such an awesome question. Um, you know, it just, I tend to, I tend to live my life in a way that if it's not, if, if I have to force something to work, then it's not right. I do believe in, it, patience is not quite the right word because patience seems to be almost an effort in itself to not do something to me it's more like it's like I had a I knew I had a purpose 
Simpsons I mean, voiceovers was such a strong for me. That was a good, strong purpose, and I had a, I was doing it. I had accomplished that. Now it's just a matter of maintaining it. So this was a whole nother thing. But it's like I had an idea of what I wanted to do, but it seemed like the, the horse was taking me in a different direction. So to not shut the door on an opportunity that would come up, what happened was I, P- Peter and I started working and developing this together in the early 90s for a one-woman show, like you had mentioned. And by the time 95 came around, we, we were ready to do it and produced it, you know, in a, in a theater in Hollywood. It got, actually, it got amazing reviews, ran for a couple of months as a one-woman show and got some attention. I, I got a Drama Log Award, which is the second highest award in the industry, wow. second to a Tony, and was, you know, awarded that. And so was, I think, Sound was, was given that credit also. But from there... It, it didn't feel quite complete. And Peter was the one that said, what about, you know, why don't we take a look at the idea of developing this into a screenplay? And to me, it was like a little overwhelming because I still, I didn't consider myself a writer. I did not write the one-woman show. Peter wrote the one-woman show based on interviews that he did with me. And I let him run with it. And of course, obviously, my contribution to sure. it. But, but. But Peter was the writer. And so now he's presenting this idea of doing it as a screenplay. He's like, no, no, we'll take it one step at a time. And so we started working together. And he would give me an assignment. And I would take that assignment and do a little scene. And then my confidence. And But here's the main point is that I'm trying to make. I never stopped telling the story. I would go to dinner parties. I would go out with friends. I'd have them over. We would go to whatever. And people would say, what are you doing? What's up? What are you doing now? I said, well, I said, you know, (laughs) and that's, that's the truth of it is I just kept that dream alive. And I encourage other artists out there to not be so precious with your vision because nobody's ever going to be able to tell your story. They might... They might take your idea and do their story. So that was also kind of a little bit of a push from behind saying, get on with it. You wanted to own it. Yeah, that's right. We'll do it. Yeah, do it and own it at the same time. Yeah, because if I didn't do it, somebody was going to do it and maybe do it better than me. But they'd be telling their version of an idea that I gave them. So I I never let go of it. But it it was just like as I was raising my children... You know, now I've got two babies in in by mid nineties. They were four and five years old, right. and uh, we were we were about to go to Sundance, the Sundance Film Festival. The year prior, a film called Spitfire Grill had won, and what int- we and then the night before we were traveling together, we, Peter came over and we watched Spitfire Grill. And we were so inspired by this movie and like, wow. And then we found out the way they raised their money was through the Catholic Church. And it was like, it was really quite a an endeavor because there's how, because the problem, one of the problems we had was how are we going to shoot a movie in Italy when we don't speak the language? <laughs> right. And we don't know anybody that lives over there. And how are we going to get a crew over there? I mean, it just was so overwhelming. But again, it goes back to we didn't stop telling the story. So as time marched on and The Simpsons proceeded to continue to be picked up season after season, that was really, to me, that was so helpful because it, my attention could be on putting 
putting my focus on being an artist and creating other things. The Simpsons gave you a foundation, it sounds like. Absolutely. A, a, a stability to allow you then yeah. to fly in, in, yeah. in other areas. That's right. You use a first-time director yeah. uh, who, felt, as I understand it, fell in love with your story. One time it was, it was told and said, uh, said, in essence, I want to do this. Yeah. How risky was that? Or, or <laughs> that's or, another great question. Yeah, extremely risky. It's not encouraged so much because when Peter and I were out and talking about this, the idea of of, of letting Fox Searchlight or Lionsgate pick this up and take take my idea, and they do it because they have all the funding for it. They could certainly afford to pay for the whole thing and for the. PR and marketing of it, right. just like how am I? How are we going to do this? It was all of it such a untraveled territory for us, you know. But Teron was brought on because years before that, it was when he was nineteen. He's like thirty-two years old now, I think. But I had seen a video that he had done. It was a music video that friends of mine said, "Have you seen this? Have you seen this?" It was called United, and I looked at it, and it was this awesome video, and I just loved the editing, and Tehran had done it all. He was amazing, and the way that it looked and the music, and I thought, this guy, and he's 19? Seriously? I want to meet him. So I found his phone number. I called him up. I left a message. I didn't know this, but he was a fan of Bart Simpson. That did not hurt me. He was like, he was then I found out, you know, later on, he was, years later, he was flabbergasted that I had called him. But anyway, I told him, I'd left a message, and I said, I want to work with you. I want to work with you someday, not knowing that this was going to be our future. So when it came right down to it, me looking at who am I going to have direct this, there was no question in my mind, Taron Lexton was going to be the director for this. And he brought to it such an intelligence, such a vision that um, it, it added an, that extra layer to it that Peter and I did not have that, that Tehran introduced to the film, which takes you down this rabbit hole. And by the way, that rabbit hole, Fellini was a huge Lewis Carroll fan. Yes, he was. <laughs> and, and, and the whole thing about Lucy, I didn't want to make it so autobiographical that it was about a young woman who did did voiceover work. Yeah. I didn't want to make it so yeah. self-serving, you sure. know, and, and uh, a vanity kind of a thing. I wanted to remove it. And the idea of positioning her as an artist, as a cartoonist, because that's what Fellini did. Fellini used to do and draw on napkins, and he had a little little um, cartoon that he used to do, and it was and, published. And, and it's that overlap and those references to, to Fellini's films or Fellini's yeah. life that the critics have picked up on and loved. Yes. I think, yeah, the, the, the smart ones. <laughs> <laughs> Most most of them. Right? Yeah, 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 most of them. I mean, certainly in the New York Times, and there's this guy that's a chicken farmer. I don't know where he's located, but he's got some blog, and that guy nailed it, man. I, his name is Cross something, Cross Row, I think his name is. Just like amazing guy that like, wow, wow. He got, he he got, got every ball, every, every part so of it. I was so impressed. We'll be back after this message. 
At the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University, students and faculty aren't just ready for change, they're hungry for it. The Scripps College was awarded $878,000 by the Ohio University Innovation Strategy Program for an immersive media initiative that will allow students to become skilled leaders in immersive media, especially virtual and augmented reality. The college's Game Research and Immersive Design Lab will serve as the hub for the initiative and provide several million dollars worth of gear, processes, intellectual property, award-winning scholars, and partnerships for the project. Learn more at ohio.edu slash College. I want to ask you, because the film features people in it that probably the average moviegoer wouldn't recognize. Yeah. Uh, uh, they're certainly well, do v- extremely well in their craft, but they're not household fixtures. Uh, how weird was it casting somebody to play yourself? You know, that's that's an interesting way to put it. it actually, it was fascinating. I loved it. I so wanted to be intimately involved with the, that decision. We hired a casting company right. uh, to do it because this was going to be a nationwide search for these characters. Who's going to play it? We got 2,500 submissions wow. for Lucy alone. Wow. Yeah, and Lisa London and, and Catherine Stroud had to go through all these submissions and Cull the best ones or the ones that were most qualified, got it down fairly quickly to the top four women that were that that could potentially play this lead part. Um, and then when Peter and Teron and I looked at it, uh, we were the decide we were the deciding factors. It was amongst us, and actually, kind of came down to me, you know as one of the executive producers on it and that it's my story. Sure. But it was between two young women and it's just the difference between the two gals was pretty significant. I was kind of actually go, was up more voting for the other gal because I felt she she was a little more like Nancy, more um uh, animated if you will in in personality. But what what she she lacked experience. She was a, a young actress, very improv oriented, which I love that that because right. that's what I did. That was really based on on the facts, but the way that Teron wanted to go with it and it w- was different. And when I when Teron and I spoke, I'm you know trying to understand and how this how he's going to take the script that Peter and I wrote and it's going to be elevated to a to to his vision. How is this going to work? Well, it was through that casting and that I realized that the experience of this, she had to have um, the ability to take the responsibility, she had to have the responsibility to carry the film. And that was through experience of being in front of the camera a lot. And she had already done Black Swan. She had done all these other projects. Um, the other thing is that her passion, and when we met with her, you could just you could just see it. She was burning, and she looked. She doesn't look a whole lot like she doesn't look a whole lot like 
a whole lot like me, except when I went back to 1995, I did find a photo of me on stage. I have the same haircut that we... <laughs> she she gives, uh, at least in the trailers that I've seen, she, she gives a wide-eyed yeah. performance, which uh, really underscores the naivete of the the yeah. character and and the growth that the character has it's beautiful it's to me she's got a um it's an audrey essence it's an audrey hepburn and audrey tattoo kind of a um look about her and right. viewpoint on life she was very open and in there was an innocent quality to her and that reflects on Juliet on Gelsomina in Fellini's La Strada is that she was an innocent. And I can't say that I was completely innocent myself. My journey was slightly different than the one that you'll see on the screen. I did not lead, lead like I said earlier, I didn't lead a sheltered life. Um, one of six kids being one of the top voiceover artists on the planet. It's like uh, to get there, you can't be shy. No. <laughs> like, you know, but but to create this character arc um, as Lucy Cunningham, we needed to have her start at a certain place. And by the end of the film, because it's a coming-of-age film, there's going to be a dramatic change in who she is. So you'll see that. The timing in your life for your experience uh, was interesting to me because it wasn't out of college. It wasn't out of high school. Uh, you had already started your professional career. Right. It was pre-Bart Simpson, but you had started your professional career and, and were doing well, as I understand it, uh, at the time, and then just said, I'm yeah. out of here. That, yeah. that That's an interesting point well, in your life. Yeah, but it, it kind of goes back because I think one of your earlier questions you asked me and I kind of took us off on a little bit of a different path, which happens. <laughs> but, you know, why now? Why did it happen? What made you want to do the movie now? And I started saying that it was this evolution yeah. and telling I continued to tell the story. But the confidence level and my certainty on how are we going to do it? And it's just there were a lot of other things that took me you know, took me off the path, you know, raising my kids. And I became honorary mayor of my community. I got very involved. I have a nonprofit that, you know, is an after-school program called Happy House. And we've got this Good Choices program that helps instill character. It's a character-building program for kids. That was a whole journey in itself. Um, but artistically, I felt like I had, I was whole, holding down myself. And I just... At this time in my life, it was a personal change that had come over me that I realized, wow, I've got to exp I have to express myself. There's a lot to say as an artist that I haven't said yet. And I'm almost, I'm entering my sec seventh decade of life in another month. I'm going to be 60, okay? That's shocking to people. And I'm painting, I'm sculpting, making movies now and developing animated films and, you know, possibly a television series. And I just think, I don't know, something just got awoken in myself and I realized that I have far more abilities than I ever knew that I had. I think it, in part it's a, a realization that time is not infinite necessarily. 
and we have so much to do. I, I've developed the sort of don't waste my time approach <laughs> with people because I, I, I have so much to do. I, I can't waste my time with things that, that aren't important. You know, I so understand that. I so, so understand that. I also feel like deep down inside, if I don't make time a consideration, I don't even consider that I have a limited amount of time. Just just take off that. Let's just pretend that we could live forever. Okay, how then, what do I want to do? What do I want to do with my life? Is another way of looking that, at that is like, how do I make the most out of today? You can look at it that way. But I don't consider time, I don't, it's, it's, I don't consider it a problem. If you put it there and you say, I only have this much time, you're making it a problem. Sure. Instead of making it a problem, just get rid of it. It's your decision. Nobody, I mean, whatever that other viewpoint is, that comes from outside. But I just feel like as an artist, as a, as a being, I can, live, I can do whatever I want to do. So this is this is quite a time in your life, as I understand it. To your grandmother now, you, yeah. yeah. <laughs> March a <of> grandma. <laughs> your grandma that uh, you got another Emmy nomination. Uh, you've got this film that you're promoting, and it's it's finished. Uh, the Simpsons uh, re-upped for thirty years. You're in year twenty nine. Right. Thirty years coming up. That's a great time. So is it <laughs> is it all this stability that fires your artistic uh, uh, juices at this point? I certainly feel like it has it has something to do with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of people do not have that. They don't have the wherewithal to and and. Time does enter in in a heavy kind of a way because of obligations, raising the children, pay, paying mortgage, putting you know put, putting food, food on, on the table. table. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I have I am I am incredibly privileged that I have what I have, and at the same time I'm not. I really make an effort not to take you know not to take it for granted. So I have, like I said, I get very involved with my community, and I, and I do have programs that I support that, um, to, that touch my heart that I feel I can do to help people and make contributions. You know, Ohio University has been incredibly helpful to me. I've got a scholarship program that helps every year. Some kid gets a little sure. bit of a benefit, you know, to, so to do something to make a change. But for the artist that's out there that, that can't make a living doing his or her craft or dream, making that dream come true, you still, you can absolutely find some kind of an outlet to express yourself, getting involved in, your, in a local community or, you know, if you live in a university town, right. to take advantage of all kinds of opportunities that are there to put your work up and and geez, the internet, what an incredible venue that is to create your own animated show or make your own videos and do your own thing. There's nothing stopping you but you. 
Does that do, does that, that make makes, sense? That makes, you know? that makes a great deal of, of, of sense. So, uh, I mean, all the privileges that I have that people go, well, it's easy for her to say that because she's like, she's a super billionaire and she doesn't have to worry about this stuff. No, that's, that is true. And at the same time, I still had to make the decisions. And no, you had to do the work. Yeah, that's right. Nobody is doing it for me. Although I have an amazing staff that like, <laughs> my personal assistant really knows where I should get a foot rub. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't, mean to be, I don't want to be glib about it. it. Really, the point is that it really comes down to you. you. As an individual, it's you're responsible for the condition you are in. And if you're not doing well, you have to take a look at that and say, what's stopping me? Who is stopping me? And it comes down to just like these considerations is that I don't have the money. I don't have the time. I don't have the relationships. I don't have the networking ability. My computer is like I, my computer doesn't work. I don't have the uh, I, I can't, you know, blah, 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 blah. All of that adds to an emptiness, though. It's that, true. That can be filled with with the things that you were talking about. Yeah. To make your dreams come true. Can I ask you two Bart Simpson questions? And I promise I won't ask you to do the voice. <laughs> I, I, I have I have two questions that have been gnawing at me. Sure. Okay. One is, how has Bart Simpson and your characterization of him changed in the technological age, where we now have children in cribs with with tablets and yeah and Younger people are not only digital natives, it surrounds them. Yeah. Has that changed the way you've approached BART? BART? Um, I can see the influence of our evolving technical culture, how that has influenced the writing. And I think what it is is that it's the, the culture. It's, to me... It can, there's somewhat, part of it is a downward spiral because the communication amongst ourselves, I feel, has been challenged. You know, even though phones, in some ways, they make it more efficient because you can just text somebody a quick question, whereas if you have to get them on the phone, there's even a, there's even a delay when somebody answers the phone and says, you know, Hello, Magnum Institute. Uh, this is Gerald speaking. How can I help you? How can I place your call? You're listening to that. I go, Gerald, it's me. Hi, it's Dave. Oh, hi, Nancy. What can I do for you? <laughs> Even that 15 sure. seconds, it's like if you could just text, hey, what's the, name of the, what's the name of the fellow that I met yesterday at lunch? You know, you can... You don't have to go through that. You don't that. have to go through all that. You could just get your question answered. But it makes it very, very sterile very kind of like what happened to the affinity in a, in a relationship? What happened to, you know, that personal thing? And, or conversation. Yeah, like what, what we're having right now. We yeah. see eye to eye. That has, that has dissipated. That's troublesome. And it bothered me growing up as the voice of Bart Simpson, and I could see it. I saw it with, well, I had rules. My, my kids were not raised on on cell phones. We didn't have them when my kids were little. My son's 20, almost 26. My daughter's 27. Like they didn't have it. But nieces and nephews had it. And that was disturbing. It's like, all right, here's a basket. You guys put the phones in the basket. We're just good. It was a protest. It was a strong protest that they did not want to do that. So that 
let's that, go play or let's do something. But it's or, just a fact of life. Yeah. We used to play outside and play Go Sheepy Go and Red Rover and go uh, catch the flag, you know. Um, and make kid, up stories. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's, and live those stories. Right. So it is more challenging for the parents today to be able to actually – you have to do that to create a family, to create that relationship. You have to create it. It's just a little more challenging today. So you put rules in. That's that's the solution. You just have rules. But Bart Simpson, yeah, I see it. And he's saying things on on television now that he didn't say before. It was so verboten. It was like stuff that this when I, you look at the early Simpsons, it was tame compared to what is on television and cable now. So tame compared to a lot of the almost all the other animated shows, Simpsons still rem- has a certain integrity to it that yes. Matt and Jim and Sam put there from the very beginning. Yes. But even now, it's a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit, just slightly more representing the culture, because they have on the Simpsons they have they have cell phones now. Yeah. It, it it has to almost reflect the culture. Yeah. Last question on mm-hmm. on, on this. You have had a passion for Fellini uh, yourself uh, and Fellini films. It's evidenced in this this new movie that that's out and that you produced and and created. Is there any of Fellini and Bart Simpson? Oh goodness. Tom, <laughs> I'm going to have to send you a T-shirt. Nobody has asked me that question. You've got to be kidding. That is hilarious. First of all, I want to correct something, that my fascination was never with Fellini's films, okay. plural. It was, it was just, La for me, it was, yeah, it was just La Strada. Uh, okay. But in the course of doing it, there's okay. more fascination with his films, and and I hope that that's one of the byproducts or subproducts that you would, that people will get. They they'll be interested then in finding out. I got to go see La Strada now. That would be cool. Or La Dolce Vita, or Satyricon, or Amarcord. These are the most freak, the, touched on films in, right. in the film. Um, Bart and Fellini. I don't see any. What would the correlation be? Except that that I parts don't know. Of, well that he's a that he's an animated character, and Fellini did have a fascination with cartoons. With so well, right. yeah, and he did he did cartoon drawings, and he created. Oh my gosh, he he did do a little cartoon image of Julietta Messina that was adorable, and it was her as Gelsamina. Totally, totally like, wow, I would love to get the rights to take that and develop that little gal into a little character. Yeah, we, we, we must, Peter, we must call Francesca, just <laughs> Francesca Fellini and see about there doing that. That'd be sweet. Nancy, thank you so much for talking with us. My I pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Wow, loved it. Thank you. Today, we've been talking with voiceover actor Nancy Cartwright, the voice of Bart Simpson for 29 years. We talked with her about her new feature-length autobiographical film called In Search of Fellini. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. 
We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast, please direct them to me at hodson at ohio.edu. That's my email address, hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Thank you.